Hey there, campers, and welcome back to another episode of Outdoors Podcast. I'm your host, AJ Eads, and today is the day, the episode I know you've all been waiting for. Three years ago, my wife walked into T. Hargrove Fly Shop in St. Louis and told the guys working that day that she wanted to buy her boyfriend, that's me at the time, his first fly rod, and that he'd want to make a video about it for his, my YouTube channel. Uh, after being shunned by the other shop in town for likely not having enough money to buy a good rod and not allowing cameras in the store, she was pretty relieved to have such a warm welcome from the guys at T. Hargrove. Not only did they show her a few options that would work well for her budget, they were more than happy to allow the filming in the store and even invited the two of us to take a casting lesson together to get the basics of casting right. Fast forward three years, and you can easily say the person who has had the biggest impact on my fly fishing career has been Craig Stevens, the general manager of T. Hargrove Fly Shop, and also my good friend. Craig is one of the nicest humans you will ever meet. He's patient, he's welcoming, he really works hard to make the sport of fly fishing approachable for everyone, and for that, I'm really grateful. Uh, We talked about how he got into fly fishing, how he made the move from banking to running a fly shop, and his passion for education and helping new people learn the sport. I had a great time talking to Craig about trips and guides, the shop, and really a whole lot more. You're going to love this one. Let's dig right in. We're slightly above everybody else on the intellectual (laughs) scale, I think. Altitude sickness is no joke. Once it gets below zero, it's cold. There are a lot less sportsmen now than there were, say, 20 years ago. You're actually, you were used as a pawn in our game to figure out what it was that we were doing wrong. You know, at that point, we didn't have one great tent. Like, we had one good tent, one not good tent. (laughs) Wind was just whipping. Uh, There was, like, snow BBs (laughs) just, like, pelting the face. All right, we are live. Craig, welcome to the podcast. This is a long time coming. I'm super Thank you, excited. AJ. Super excited to have you. Uh, Craig, you have been the general manager of T. Hargrove Fly Fishing Shop, my favorite place in the whole wide world, uh, for quite some time now. Uh, I think coming up on 12 years you've been here. Um, so how did you kind of find yourself in the fly fishing world, not only as an angler, but then how did you find yourself kind of working at a fly fishing shop and then eventually running one? Good question. So I spent, uh, the first almost 20 years of my career in the banking industry of all things, which is kind of weird for a fly fishing manager, but, uh, uh, did banking for a long time, went through multiple, uh, acquisitions within the banking industry and at uh, one point in my life found myself uh, out of the industry as they say in a pinch on a big uh, acquisition um, I'd gotten into fly fishing probably five six years before that and uh, I was kind of looking for a part-time job until I found something uh, back in my field as it were and uh, happened to stop by this fly shop and uh Tom was looking for somebody, so I talked to him about it and uh, started out part-time, and um, I guess the rest is history. I'm still here. Uh, It's been a long road, but uh, so, yeah, I was uh, in the business world for a long time and uh, um, just found myself falling in love with this and uh, been with it ever since. Yeah, so what was it about the shop that you think maybe gave you the comfort to say, like, hey, I'm going to kind of let that former career go and just kind of take this thing more and run with it was there anything in particular or did it just kind of go day by day and all of a sudden you're in it yeah i guess um i don't know if there was anything particular uh i certainly 
enjoyed working here as soon as I started. Um, I uh, had fallen in love with fly fishing and all things related, and uh, it gave me opportunity to teach people things about fly fishing, which is um, probably the only reason I'm still in the industry. I enjoy that part of the, I enjoy that part of it all. So what got you into the sport? You talked about the fact that you were kind of gotten into it five or so years prior. What was your introduction? Was it a, an individual or was it a day? How did you get into it? Good question. So um, I'd fished all my life uh, since I was a little kid. Um, never fly fished. Uh, I shouldn't say that. My dad actually had a couple old beater fly rods when, it, when I was a kid. Um, didn't really know how it was supposed to all work. I remember taking it to a creek and just kind of stripping a bunch of line out and letting a popping bug drift downstream as I let line drift downstream and then <laughs> popping it back and catching a few fish. And this is kind of cool, but I had no idea what I was doing. Um, so I was actually at um, Mardi Gras. And downtown St. Louis one year, my wife and I, and I bumped into an old high school friend and she said, oh, you got to meet my husband. Um, he loves to fish. He doesn't know anybody. He wants to fish. And I was like, okay. So I met this guy. He's a really cool dude. And he invited me over to fish his in-laws bass pond in their subdivision. So I went over there and I had my spinning rod, my plastic worms. And this dude had a fly rod and a little deer hair uh, popping bug. And he's hammering bass on this thing. And I was like, I got to learn how to do this. So that was kind of the start of it. That's pretty cool. That's very similar to kind of what got Sarah and I into it. I, I probably told the story on the podcast before, but, you know, Sarah's dad introduced us to trout fishing through Montauk State Park. He's been going down there for decades. He's a, a scout leader, and they've taken kids down there for years. And, uh, you know, he invited us on a couple of trips. And our first years fishing were just, you know, gear spin fishing throwing you know power bait and dough balls and all that kind of stuff and catching that's fish. exactly how i started yeah catching fish having a lot of success enjoying it enjoying being in the river enjoying the camping the whole thing it's a great experience and then one day we were not having a ton of success and this guy comes down the river just absolutely smacking fish like every 10 feet and he's on a fly rod and he's got barbless hooks and literally the ease at which he was throwing fish back was almost hilarious it was just he was so adept at it and it, it really showed me like this guy really knows what he's doing this guy's complete kind of in the total process he can you know target the fish he can bring them in he can release them really quickly he gets right back to it and we kind of stopped him and said hey you know what what, what the hell and he was like well first of all i've been i've lived here for 30 years so i know every single little pocket i know where all the fish are so let's call it what it is first I was on, it was cool that he was honest about it, but he was like, yeah, it's, I think it's, he basically said, I think it's a more efficient way to fish once you kind of figure it out. I was like, cool. I want to learn how to do that. And that's when Sarah kind of got really excited about trying to get me my first fly rod. She came in here, talked to you guys, said, Hey, I want to get my, my boyfriend at the time, you know, a fly rod. And the rod. rest as they say. And the rest as they say is history, right? <laughs> so I came in here, and one of the things that I think is really special about this place is that it's incredibly inviting uh, to new anglers, right? And there are a lot of fly shops that you can walk into across the country. Some of them are going to be easier on the noob than others. And this place, to me, is so inviting, so welcoming. And since being here, I mean, I sit on this pew that's sitting behind us all the time just you know drinking coffee hanging out shooting the shit with people 
uh, and you see newbies walking in that were where I was three years ago, and they're going to pick up a Reddington Path combo and do exactly what I did three years ago. And I get to sit here and like kind of see from the outside the same experience that I had three years ago, which is really cool. You guys do such a great job of not overwhelming people, giving them the amount of information that they need, but then kind of letting them develop on their own without just like flooding them with too much. Um, is there is that kind of like a conscious effort to make sure that newbies are well taken care of, or is it just kind of the general vibe of the shop where like all people get taken care of equally? Well, from my perspective, yeah, absolutely. That's a big vibe of the shop because when I got started in fly fishing, it wasn't always quite like that. People, there were a lot of the secret handshake type things going on right. with leaders and flies, and you kind of had to pay your dues, and people, you were serious about it before you'd get any good information. And uh, maybe I give out too much information easily, <laughs> the stuff that I had to learn from the School of Hard Knocks. But uh, for me, yeah, that's a lot of it. Try to... Um, dumb it down. I don't know if that's the right term, but yeah. uh, try to simplify things for people so it's not as complicated as people try to make it be. And it can be very complicated, even to me to this day. There's, I mean, I'm the first to admit, I don't know it all. Yeah. I don't think anyone will ever know it all. Um, it's one of the things I like about it. But uh, trying to uh, simplify things, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I learned in the car business that was really important uh, I read this great book a while back called The Tipping Point, and it kind of talks about the different types of people that it takes to move something, you know, kind of to mainstream culture. And it talks about the difference between salespeople and mavens. And mavens want to give everybody the, all, all the information that they have in their brain so that that person can make a good decision. And a salesperson will kind of remove all of that clutter and help the person make a good decision without maybe necessarily over-informing them. And when I worked in the car business, we had a guy that worked with me named Eddie, and Eddie was kind of the, the main sales guy at the dealership I worked at. He made a ton of money. He was incredibly good at what he did, and he worked harder than any human being I've ever met. Shout out to Eddie if you're out there listening to this. Go ahead. Uh, and what Eddie did, and the general manager used to give us all shit because Eddie sold way more cars than us. Eddie's from Bosnia, lived in Germany, speaks English, uh, but, but, you know, in a very heavy accent. And the general manager would always say like, dude, Eddie sells circles around you guys and he can't even speak English. What the hell's wrong with you? But I actually thought it was kind of an advantage for Eddie because when someone would say, you know, AJ, tell me about the features of this car. I would go, oh, it's got eight way power seats. And let me show you how the Bluetooth system worked. And oh my God, if it's got this and the heated seats do this and that. And I would just paralyze people with too much information. And quite frankly, I would miss the one thing that they actually cared about. And if they asked Eddie, Eddie, what does this car have on it? He'd go, loaded. Or he'd go, base model, doesn't have shit. And he'd just keep it super simple and not over-inform people. And if they had the questions, he was prepared to answer them. He always had the training, he always had the knowledge, but he kept it really simple for people. And if someone walks into a fly shop It'd be really easy to go, well, fly, fly rods start at zero weights and they go to 12. And that's an indication of how big a fish you can catch. And most of the time when someone walks in, it's a lot easier to just go, you probably need a nine foot five weight rod or six. That's what most people use in this area. Well, you know, I think you find, um, and, and I think that's a good approach. The yeah. Eddie, the Eddie approach, we'll call it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I yeah, kind of like yeah, that. I kind of like that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, you get people 
everybody's different. And some people want to know everything. But I think the Eddie approach, you go in simple. Here's some basic stuff. If they have more questions, I'll be happy to answer them. Yeah. Um, and you better know what you're talking about, yeah. which I'm sure he did. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to acquiring knowledge, like working at a fly shop, when did you feel confident, competent to be able to kind of speak to, you know, hey, this is where you, sh you should go, or these are the kinds of the fish that are in this area. This is the kind of equipment that you could recommend in a given day. Like, was that a couple of years in? Did it take you quite a while the to get The day it? I started, but I've gotten better. <laughs> You're ready to go. But I've gotten better. Gotcha, gotcha. That's a good question. I mean, you know, you have some ideas, but you, I mean, uh, as you know, since you've been in it for a few years now, um, boy, you just learn so much every year. And uh, of course, working in the industry, I get to ramp up my knowledge base a little bit a little quicker um i guess every day i feel a little more i mean i'm at the point now that i feel pretty comfortable there's not something that i probably can't answer correctly for right. a customer um but uh probably three four years uh working here into the industry i felt pretty confident on mo most stuff yeah so so being in this industry, one of the kind of upsides, but also I would imagine a challenge is that for you to stay competent, for you to stay kind of up on your knowledge, part of the thing is you've got to go fishing, right? Like you've actually got to go out and do the thing that we all want to do, but you've also got to be here at the shop to sell stuff. And so that I would imagine that that kind of puts a demand on the few days that you do have off. You know, you obviously want to spend time with your family. You want to do that kind of thing. You know, how do you prioritize fishing or does it just kind of come naturally? You love it and it's just something that you want to do. I probably prioritize fishing in the same way that everyone else does. You do it when you can. Right. Now, I may be a little more fanatical about it than most to prioritize that time. But uh, I'm probably uh, no different than everyone else. I'm working uh, five days a week when I'm not on vacation and uh, I fish when I can. And uh, like I said, I might try to fish more than most people, but. You fish when you can. Cool. So let's kind of use that as a, a transition into when you're going out and trying to fish new places. Uh, when you want to go, you know, somewhere else that you've never been, or if you want to go somewhere that you have been, but you want to maybe get a new experience. You know, part of that is finding a guide or, or hiring a guide. So when you're thinking about going somewhere and you want to hire a guide, how do you go about doing your research? Are you asking, you know, friends, hey, have you fished with anybody there before? Or do you just kind of go to the internet? Do you use kind of the, the the industry that you have kind of at your disposal? And then what kind of questions or what kinds of information are you trying to gather from guides to know that, like, you've picked the right guy? So let me just put it this way. Um, if you're if you've never hired a guide before sp specifically, um, my best advice is ask lots of questions. I've only been fly fishing for six months. I've been fly fishing for 15 years. I like to dry fly fish. I like to streamer fish. I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, ask questions because most fly shops that offer guide services, there's a lot of different guides. And some people are better with new people. Um, some people are more experienced guides. They do this super technical fishing. Ask the questions before you go. Give them an honest opinion or an honest uh, portrait of where you are as a fisherman. And um, that's the best thing you can do. Of course, there's so many more, there's so many opportunities to do reviews on the internet about the shop and the guides and blah, 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 blah. But the best thing, best advice I can give is be honest about what you're looking to do and what your experience level is. Gotcha. 
Gotcha. And 15 years later, as someone that's, you know, been in the industry for quite some time, uh, or, you know, coming up on 17 years, I would say, uh, when you go out and, and hire a guide, what kind of experience are you looking for? Like what, what kinds of, um, you know, rivers are you looking for or what kinds of guides kind of, uh, you know, make you the happiest when you're going out? Well, unfortunately, usually, uh, anymore when I'm hiring guides, I'm going out West somewhere and I'm taking a group of guys with me. So I don't get to necessarily hand pick all the guides we're going to be using, Gotcha. but if I find a guy that I like or dislike, I'm going to hire them or not hire them the next time I go. Gotcha. Um, and if you find a guy that you like, stick with them. That's a big thing. Absolutely. Gotcha. So rather than maybe, you know, uh, exploring different guides on the same river, if you find someone that you really like, stick with them because that's that's a, a tougher experience to find yeah well um i wouldn't say a tougher experience i've had a lot of guides over the years and knock on wood i've had very few that i wouldn't um go back and use again oh that's awesome. but i have said but i have had some that i would never go back and use again no joke um so there are bad guides out there uh to me that's very much the exception versus the rule um Best advice, and, and here's the thing. A lot of times when people are going to go on a fishing trip out west to the Rocky Mountains somewhere, um, they're not going to hire a guide for guides for five or six days. We can't afford that. We're going to yeah. hire a guide for a day. So the best advice I can give people, ask lots of questions. Give them an idea of what you're looking for, what your, what your uh, experience level is, and... Um, Hire the guide. If you're going on a week vacation, hire the guide day one, not day seven. Gotcha. Um, you're going to get to know how they fish the water, what flies they're using, and you can usually pick their brains on other places to fish uh, while you're on your trip. Gotcha. So if you're going to hire a guide first time, you don't want to hire a guide every day, do it day one of your trip or early in the trip. Yeah. And then what, what would be your advice for that person? Because I think, you know, one of the ideas that I got probably incorrectly in this was just hearing somebody wrong. Shout out to our buddy Brad that was on episode, I don't know, four or five. Brad, if you're out there, what's up, buddy? Um, and Brad basically said kind of the same advice. Hey, one of the things that I do when I'm hitting a new fishery or a new piece of water I'll hire a guide on day one, and then that gives me some idea of where to go. I agree with what that to a fish, thousand all percent. That, right? Absolutely. However, what you don't want to do is then stack up on that guide's spot like the next four, five, six days in a row. No, ask lots of questions right. while you're fishing with that guy. Hey, we're going to be here for three days, a week, ten days. Any suggestions on some other places we might fish? And that's where I'm going. Absolutely. That's a good idea. And that's a really good piece of advice. You're so, going to get a lot better advice hiring a guide and asking questions than going into a fly shop and buying three flies. That's a really good piece of advice. Yeah. Certainly a different cost, but absolutely you're going to get a much better idea of what to do and where to go. As a client, what are some of the things that you try to do to make sure that you are, you know, being one of those clients that that guide wants to get back uh, and have fish with them again? Or is it just basically don't be a douchebag and be a nice guy? Uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, <laughs> like uh, most of the good guys that I've had over the years, um, they know what they're doing, you know, and uh, you listen to them and uh 
you do what they say and you catch fish and uh like you said yeah you're not a douchebag i don't know i usually <clears throat> you know me i've known you a long time you talk to the person yeah. you have a con- i mean it's a long day you have a conversation human. you talk to people yeah absolutely yeah. absolutely so as a teacher kind of being on the other side of that you know i've taken a casting lesson with you it was right. hugely helpful for me and kind of learning some of the basics and going through you know one of the things that i've learned over the years is YouTube can teach you an awful lot, but what it typically doesn't do is give you the foundation in the right order where you kind of build upon the skills that you need to learn first, right? So it's really easy to pick up a fly rod and what does everybody want to do? They want to whip a fly back and forth 87 times. They want to do 37 cat, you know, uh, false casts and then have this beautiful, perfect, you know, thing land on the water. Uh, and you just being able to say, saying, you know, hey, let's start with roll casts. Let's kind of get the basic action of loading the line on the water that was huge for me understanding like oh that's an important part of where you start the line on the water how have you kind of developed as a teacher over the years and what are some of the things that you see beginning fly fishers what are the biggest mistakes in getting a fly cast going that you see that you kind of have to correct every time so the first thing i'll say is um when you're teaching someone if you're a good teacher is everybody's different um there's a uh, a certification process called a certified master caster no joke yeah it's actually a, a fly fishing uh certification to become a professional fly fishing casting instructor i guess would be Interesting. the right term. i did not know this existed so um i looked into it a long time ago and uh there were two things that I didn't like about it. The first thing was you had to pay every year to re-up your certification. Smart move on their part. But the other thing I didn't like about it, and the other thing that I've learned over teaching over the years, is um, they have, this is the way you should do it. And it's very um, structured. Very rigid. This is the way you do it. And in teaching people a lot over the years, I found that everybody's a little different and there isn't a cookie cutter approach if you're teaching people the right way, in my opinion. Um, But to answer your question on the other side, uh, the most important thing and the most biggest problem in casting is people putting their back cast in the wrong position. Gotcha. And just throwing it way too far behind them versus around them. them behind them. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah. And so how do you coach people to correct that? What is it? What is kind of some of the feedback? I thought you you took a lesson from me. I did, but I want you to tell, I want you to tell, I can sit here and ramble all day long, but I want you to tell the listeners, uh, what is the feedback that you're giving most people early on, you know, kind of in their casting? How do you you coach them to get that fly in the right position? Yeah. So we'll do some, we'll do some basic stuff. Like, don't worry about your forward cast. Um, let's try to get your back cast going up in the air at a steep angle and watch it, watch it go back there um, and getting a feel of where that rod has to stop to make the line go up versus where you have to stop to make the line unroll level, which is kind of more what we're looking for and where the rod is going when you're in the hole, as I call it, and it's hard to recover. Gotcha. Gotcha. And is it to you, is it a big advantage having a park nearby that's got a pond that's castable where you can go and actually put people on the water versus 
having somebody out in the grass next to the shop or something like that? It it makes a big difference. Well, it's like with especially with roll casting, you almost have to have water. Um, but yeah, it makes a big difference getting the feel of the line picking up off the water and the friction of the line on the water, loading the rod on the initial pickup cast. Um, but I'm all about practice. And if you got a spot in the yard, you can cast. I say go cast. That's a wise decision. That's a wise decision. As far as gear goes, I mean, obviously you guys have all the gear in the world. As the you know general manager of a fly shop, is it tempting for you to constantly be, you know, taking the newest gear out, or are you kind of in a place where you can say like, hey, I can fish with pretty much whatever. I've got the classic stuff that's in my kind of uh, you know repertoire. I've got the stuff that I own, and you just kind of stick with your classic setups or, or are you kind of constantly you know shopping the, the stuff around so can you put that in context again what, so how, for how example like every time you go out you obviously have access to like every demo rod in the shop right like you can go sure. shop you can go fish the newest sage x fly rods you can go fish the coolest new stuff from all the best manufacturers do are you the kind of person that constantly takes those demo rods out and wants to constantly fish with the coolest newest stuff or do you kind of have a selection of rods that you have in your personal collection that you like to fish more? I probably more have a selection of rods in my personal collection that I like to fish more. Um, I guess I've fished enough to know when I pick up rods just by casting them. I kind of know how I think they would fish. Yeah. If that makes sense. Sure. Absolutely. Um, and a lot of it comes down to what you like. I yeah. mean, rods come with different actions for a reason. Everybody's a little different. Um, I mean, we've had rods. I'm not going to mention any companies or models that uh, is the new, latest, greatest thing. And for me, they were horrible. Yeah. Uh, but uh, And there's other rods that I think are fantastic that don't sell very well. Yeah, uh, And I think that's... Um, really what it comes down to once you get your casting stroke down and learn to uh, feel comfortable with your casting then you can pick up different rods you can pick up expensive rods and oh i like this i don't like that and it's very much a personal thing um yeah if it's a super fast action rod i can adjust my casting stroke to it if it's a fiberglass rod i can slow my cast down to make it work is that what i want to do and enjoy doing probably not right so i think it's about that is finding a rod that feel that fits how you feel comfortable with your casting stroke yeah i think that's wise i mean you know i know i got a uh three weight as a gift this year that didn't you know wasn't acquired here at the shop and when i kind of said hey i want to get a line for this you were pretty adamant about like hey bring the rod in let's put some lines on it let's cast it i don't know that rod that well but let's make sure that the line we get matches up it's not just the scientific so 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 now you're super super expensive so now we're getting into step two i mean one is what kind of action do you like in the rod and then um with so many choices in fly lines these days, making sure that you have the fly line that matches up with the action of the rod, to me, makes a huge difference. And that's why I asked you that question, yeah. is let's see what the flex of the rod is. Let's make sure we get the line that matches that 
rod action up to, even though in the end it may not be the rod action you like. Yeah. You may never fish the rod again, and, and, or you might fish it all the time. And, and quite frankly, you know, when I brought the rod in, we we tried some different lines, and I ended up with the frequency line, which is probably about half the cost of some of the higher end lines that scientific anglers made, and it was absolutely what I needed for that rod, for that reel, you know, for for that setup. It worked really, really well. So sure. you were right. I mean, you know, it's really easy to walk in and go, "Give me the best line." And yeah, that's probably going to be one of the more expensive lines, but it may not be the right fit for that rod for your style. So it's important to kind of try a bunch of different things, which is, I think, one of the huge advantages that we have, or at least that I've had in having a local fly shop, right? Because there are people out there that only have, you know, a Dick's in their town or only have, you know, a, a, a what's the new shop Academy or something like that, that has a, a basic fishing section. Um, there is just such a huge difference. Even if you're an hour away, I highly encourage you go drive that hour, spend some time at your local fly shop. There's a, it's not even in the same category. It's compare. It's like comparing apples to steaks. It's not even comparing apples to oranges. It's so different in the kinds of information you get, the experience. You know, I was just posting on Instagram earlier, not to sound so millennial, but there's a, a, a rotary vice behind me that is mechanical. It's got gears in it. It's crazy looking. It looks like something that was forged with solid iron. I think it was. I really think it is. I mean, it's huge and heavy looking. You're not going to see that ever going over to, you know, to Dick's or to Bass Pro or anything. Not to, you know, shit on brands. But um, the, the things that I've gotten to experience in this fly shop, the tying class, for example... Um, you know, where did the tying class come from and how did that get started? Was that something that existed before you or was that kind of part of your contribution to the shop? Where did the tying class come from? So, um, pre me, but, uh, I understand, uh, Tom started doing some fly tying classes on Wednesday evenings right here around this little round table that we're sitting at. Yeah. And, uh, he would do them, uh, once a week and Honestly, I don't even know what the format was. I don't know if you signed up or you just showed up right. or if he charged anybody or how it all worked. Um, so when I started working at the shop, um, I started doing some fly tying classes around this little table we have right here. And uh, we didn't have um, the big back room that we now that we now have. Yeah. I was telling you, we just had this half of the shop and I would do a five week course and you'd start with how to put the hook in the vise and we'd try to move forward through a sequence of flies to the graduation cool. at the end. Um, now we've got room and we're doing the fly tying classes every, well, not right pre -COVID, now, yeah. pre COVID, uh, every Tuesday. So it's evolved into something a little different and that, um, we're basically tying a couple different flies every week and we've got a huge, uh, range of experience levels in tying from people that have never put a hook in the vise to people that are very good tires that just like to come and tie with a big group, yeah, uh, which yeah. is to me the fun of it all. Yeah. I mean, we've had 12 year old kids come in and then all of a sudden they're coming every week and you've got people that have been there for uh, or have been tying for 30, 40 years and so, have a ton of experience. So it's kind of evolved from five, maybe six crowded people sitting here at this little table to, um, we've opened it up to, we can have, as you know, you've been, <clears throat> been to a number of the classes, 15 to 20 people per week. So yeah. we're reaching a bigger target audience. 
um, and hopefully get more people into the tying aspect. Of how it. much of it do you think is people that really want to learn how to tie and grow their skill set in that? And how much of it is that you think people just want to kind of bullshit with friends that fish and you know have a whiskey and, and spend some time with other anglers? I think a lot of it is people are just wonder what it's all about. Yeah. Interested in what, how does this work? How do you do it? And, uh, probably honestly if i had to put a percentage of people that took beginning fly tying and are still with it wow i don't even know that'd be hard to put a number it's on probably it probably pretty small i was gonna say i was gonna say less than 25 yeah yeah probably but i will say this i mean you know it was one of the things that you said to me at the conclusion of when i was kind of here for the first day buying my gear getting a fly rod and some basic flies leaders and things like that you said hey you know we've got this class if you want to come learn this other thing that's kind of part of the sport but also you know kind of its own thing on its own if you want to come check it out i was like all right cool and i showed up and i liked the dexterity of the you know the skills and the little kind of finite finger movements i could see as you would get older that being something. i thought you were going to say the dark arts part of no, it. Go no ahead. no i enjoyed <laughs> i really enjoyed kind of the the diversity of everybody in the room of just you had this huge range of skill levels absolutely as you said right not only in fly tying but also in fly fishing and then it became a group of friends that i got to rely on showing up on a tuesday night it was the same thing as going to the bar for me or as going to a restaurant or going to bowling, whatever. Just became my group of friends that I got to hang out with every Tuesday. To this day. And to that this you day, still yeah. Fish a lot of them are still friends, right? And uh, Ed and I still go fishing together quite a bit. Right. Uh, and then when I run in, I mean, I saw, um, God, why can't I think of his name? Uh, Ken. I saw Ken at the shop the other day and recognized him by his hat and was just like, Ken, what the hell have you been doing? And Ken's probably in you know his late 70s, early 80s, if I had to guess. So it really brings people that probably wouldn't have otherwise come together uh, and helps them build relationships, which is really cool. You know, as people come in and out of the shop, how much of your enjoyment of working here is the fact that, I mean, I always think that Tom basically loves this place because all of his friends show up every day and hang out with them. Uh, is that a part of why you enjoy working at a fly shop? It's like basically these really- None of my friends come here. <laughs> Just a bunch of derelicts and to teach my friends and help them for years. They won't listen to me. Because I've just I've made a ton of friends coming here and hanging out and just sitting here in the church pew or in the chairs, walking around the shop. I meet guys like Eric Hammerstone and Ed, and Frank, and you know other guys through the shop. Uh, you've got you know groups that have come up and kind of gather here in the evening on occasion. Um, you know, is that been a big part of what's kind of kept you? In the industry is just that the, was the fun of it. probably initially getting to know other people that I didn't know within my little circle that did it, you know, meet new people. Yeah. Um, I probably met enough new people. Uh, You've got your circle. You're good. I, honestly, the thing that that I enjoy most about it is uh, is the teaching aspect. Gotcha. Of it. Both the tying and the casting and just explaining stuff to people. Um, if I didn't enjoy that part of it, I would have been gone long ago. Gotcha. Gotcha. So you've had the chance to go and do quite a bit of fishing. What stuff is still out there on the horizon? Uh, rivers that you want to fish or species that you want to target? What's the kind of stuff that's out there that you still want to do? Good question. I've got to do a lot of stuff. Um, 
I guess the Driftless area. No I joke. Keep saying, really? I, I keep saying I got to go. I've been to the Smoky Mountains 15 times and I've never been to the Driftless area. So that's definitely probably at the top of my list of to do things. Why is it that you think you've kind of not gone there? I have no good reason. It seems like it's such a no brainer being so close. I have no good reason. Gotcha. No good explanation. And what's been your experience? Have you done a decent amount of saltwater fly fishing or is that kind of. No, been... I've done very little saltwater fly fishing. And not huge uh, on your priority no, list? I have done it. I, uh, uh, I've enjoyed it. I've caught snook, I've caught tarpon. Um, it's cool. Uh, it's a long way away from here. It you is. Know, and uh, it ain't cheap. Gotcha. Uh, saltwater guides are not inexpensive. No, they're not. Now no, you can certainly, not. now you can certainly beach fish. Uh, I have a lot of customers that go down for vacation to Alabama, Mississippi, Florida, the Keys, wherever they're going, and they're fishing off the beach. And yeah, you might catch a hundred pound tarpon off the beach, but you're catching ladyfish and you're catching. Uh, uh, ocean perch and whatever. Right. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. Jacks. So not, jacks is what I was thinking. Gotcha. Of. Skip jacks. Yeah. So um, it's one thing going and doing it, uh, but let me put it this way. I really enjoyed it a lot. And I could see me losing a lot of money by doing it too much. I could see that. <laughs> I could see that. Yeah. There's a reason yeah, that salt, I've. Saltwater fishing is a, a pretty pretty cool stuff yeah i do, i've never done cocaine in my life because i know that i would love cocaine and so i've purposefully stayed away from it because i know it'll destroy me if you're a serious fly fisherman saltwater fishing might be the cocaine of fly fishing. exactly yeah. exactly yeah and I, but the funny thing is is that sadly it seems like that's where the majority of bad guide stories seem to uh, be more prevalent. And I don't know why that is. I don't know whether it's just harder to be a fly fishing guide on saltwater. And so there's just less of them. And so they can kind of be what they want to be. I don't know what the deal is. I'm not, I'm not like talking shit on fly, fly guides out there that I've never met. Um, but you know, are there any international trips that really kind of pique your interest or any kind of international species that are out there that you're like, Oh God, if I had the chance, I'd love to go do that. No, no, really? But if I, you know, if I'm going to take a, if I'm going to take a vacation to where, wherever it be, Europe or I will probably, yes, I'll incorporate some fishing into it. But gotcha. I don't know if I have any, you know, got to be there um, trip. Actually, probably uh, at the top of my list would probably learn how to spay cast and go do some steelhead fishing up in British Columbia. That seems that's, like that's it that's be. one of my big bucket list things. Have you done any spay fishing at all? Very little. Very little. And not not fishing necessarily, just casting. Oh, really? Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Are, is that one of the big changes that you've seen in the industry over the last 12 to 15 years is the introduction of kind of more and more of that? Or are there other big changes that you've no, seen I that still, are kind I, of... No, I still think that's still, it's still kind of a niche. Gotcha. I mean, if you live there, you live in Washington, right. you live in Oregon, you live in Northern California, you live in... Uh, British Columbia, then uh, you obviously you saw, you know, in the Midwest, there's not a whole lot of giant general, water. Right. Uh, perfect spay casting r traditional rivers you would think of. Gotcha. Gotcha. Are there any major changes that you've seen in the industry that you think are kind of important or trends that you see that are you know, something that you think is important or is it all just kind of been kind of incremental changes forward over the last 12, 15 years? Uh, Have there been any been like huge jumps? I think the 
I think the advent in fly lines over the last 20 to 25 years is huge. Fly lines have gotten so much better than they used to be. And uh, so many more choices in rods and reels. Just a lot more stuff out there. All right. So in kind of creating a culture around the fly shop, right? Like this place is a lot more than the rods and the reels and the lines and everything that you sell, right? You've got a wood-burning stove. Tom and you guys make food, chili, hot dogs, and stuff like that on a regular basis. I don't want to say on a daily basis. Um, there's constantly records and, and good CDs spinning. How much of the character of a fly shop is the stuff you sell, and how much of it is all the kind of other stuff that goes into you know what makes a fly shop a fly shop? I think all of it's the second thing. Oh, really? You know, absolutely. Uh, I've been in a lot of fly shops. And when I travel and I go somewhere and I see a fly shop, yeah, I'm going to check it out, right? Yeah. And uh, I'm sure you've done the same thing. For sure. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, what, do, what, would I, what would be the right term? Strip mall fly shops. Yeah. You know, a little antiseptic. Um, been in a lot of fly shops. I haven't been in a lot of fly shops like this one. I've been in some really cool fly shops over the years, but not a lot. Yeah, um, and it is unique, and it all comes from the owner. You know, yeah. um, Tom started a long time ago with this little tiny storefront here, and uh, has built the business up and uh, built a culture of uh, what it is now. You know, yeah. um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if there is a you know Tom. I've heard Tom tell people before. Someone said, oh, "Thinking about opening a fly shop." And he's, he, he gives her the advice. Uh, someone told me a long time ago, if you want to make uh, if you want to make a little money uh, owning a fly shop, start with a lot. Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's good advice. Yeah, you can easily go down that road. And I mean, I think it, it, you're absolutely right in that you can't manufacture the culture that exists here, right? It and takes, you can't. 30 years you could you could have a wood-burning stove you could have a grill out back you could spin vinyl all day it's the people that come in here it's the total kind of history of the place it's all of these photos that you see on the wall of people that you know go on a fishing trip and are so proud of of the fish that they've caught and the experiences that they print them out and they bring them in here to be hung on the walls and you know one of the things that I love most about this place is kind of the cast of characters that comes in and out on a regular basis. The shop rats. Exactly. Right. And like, I know that I'm always comfortable and welcome to come and sit at one of these chairs around this little round fly tying table in the front of the shop or on the church pew behind me, or just kind of anywhere else. It's fine to come up here on a Saturday, grab a cup of coffee, wander the shop, all that kind of thing. And Tom said something to me one day, which was really kind of clever. I was sitting in the front of the shop, and I was like, do you ever get tired of people just sitting around and not buying anything? And he goes, no, it's because the people that are here are kind of a free security system for me. Like, if I need to go do something in the other part of the shop, if I've got three guys up here that love the place and care about it, they're not going to let somebody walk out the front door with one of these really expensive fly rods that, you know, I'm not keeping an eye on. And I was like, oh, that's a brilliant idea. He's just kind of built in his own little security system of all these people that really care about this place and want to see it thrive and succeed. So I can see that. It's a, it was a really cool kind of like little thing that he had noticed about the shop that I think a lot of people wouldn't realize. I mean, how, there's a lot of people here that care about this place. How many, how many retail stores in any business have that 
uh, format the for their business thing. Yeah. There's probably some hunting stores out there that are like that. There's probably some coffee bars out there. There's probably some restaurants out there like that. But it's a it's a small niche in the retail world of places like that. Yeah, of, of places where the customers take a real pride in being a part of it and want to protect it and take care of it and see it thrive and grow. Uh, that's a real rare place to achieve as a retail establishment. That's pretty cool. And it's it's also a, a fine line to walk. Yeah. Absolutely. If you know what I'm saying. Absolutely. All of a yeah. sudden you've got someone that's uh, wanting to hang out all the time that's probably not the best person to have hanging out all you've the time. So it's a fine line. Well. So yeah. it's a fine line. Yeah, you've got some of that as well. And it's, it's tough to curate, right, when someone is kind of overstepping their welcome. Uh, it's tough to kind of guide that person in the direction of the door without, you know, upsetting the natural balance of everything and making sure that everybody still feels welcome. And I think probably uh, the fact that there are a lot of people that do just hang out occasionally, um, that if there's someone that doesn't fit, yeah. is that the right word? Yeah. Hopefully sure. they're getting that vibe from other people that you need, they need to change your attitude or yeah, and, and let's be very clear that that has nothing to do with what you look like or where you come from it's absolutely to do with how you conduct yourself right <laughs> it's how you carry yourself and it's the attitude that you bring into the shop if you're just shitting on everybody and talking trash on everything and being negative this is not going to be a place where you're going to be very welcome right which, which is which is a very interesting thing about just the fly fishing in general um, it's one of those endeavors that I have uh, brain surgeons that are customers of mine and I have guys that work dig uh, ditches people construction guys yeah. uh it spans a broad spectrum for sure exactly yeah. exactly it's a it's a it's the whole whack pack it is a different breed so you have so many different people from so many different stratas of life that all have this passion for this one thing and uh they're in here every day so so along that lines right <clears throat> you've got this huge spectrum of people and you know i would imagine you've got customers that walk in the door every day that want to buy a fly rod and a line and a reel for you know 80 bucks because they saw that they could do that on amazon sure uh how do you kind of walk that customer through maybe some of the differences between what's available online for those kinds of prices and what's a more reasonable starter setup with, you know, a good warranty from a reliable company that kind of knows what they're doing? Like, how do you walk through somebody that or do you just recognize like, hey, there's some customers that just aren't our customers and, and they're going to go buy that Amazon rod? Uh, and, you know, you start out to me, you start off with um, you're getting started. Uh, here's some here's what we sell. And here's the cost on that. And I always tell people, if you don't buy your starter rod from me, buy something with a warranty. Rods break. I get rods, broken rods in here every day. Um, you know, you hope you're giving them good enough customer service that they're not going to go somewhere else and buy that. Yeah. But uh, my advice is always buy something with a warranty. And the other thing is, unless you got a lot of money and you don't really care, don't buy the most expensive rod because as we talked earlier, rods come in different actions. And what do you like? Do you like a fast extra rod? Do you like medium fast? Do you like slow? You have no idea. You're just getting started in this. You buy something de decent, you get your casting down. Then if you want to buy a nice rod, 
you can go and cast nicer rods and go, ooh, I like this, and ooh, I don't like that, and there's no right or wrong because so, so much of a personal decision I was talking about earlier. I've seen top-end rods come out. They won the five-weight shootout. You know, to me, it wasn't my rod. Right, right. And uh, I always try to give people that advice. Get good quality equipment. You don't have to break the bank, but get something decent, something with a warranty. Yeah, and that's that's good advice that I've gotten from kind of some of my other angling buddies is, you know, there's, there is in a lot of hobbies for a lot of people as you get into it, and the outdoor hobbies are very conducive to this, right? There's this term gas or gear acquisition syndrome where you feel like the gear itself is going to make you a better angler, a better hunter, a better photographer. And there's a lot of fly fishing customers out there like that. Yeah, exactly, right? And I'm one of them. Like, I got a lot of shit that you guys sell in here. I bought a lot of different things from bags and vests and waders and boots, rods, reels, lines, you know, leaders and all the kinds of fun little organizational things. It's also kind of your thing though. No, for sure. Self-admitting. Like I, understand I enjoy what you're up to. gear. I will yeah. be, I'm that guy. Uh, you know, I got, I brought my fish pond cooler with me that I bought here. Yes. Um, and you know, for a lot of people, I feel like out there that if you're listening, don't feel like you have to have the most expensive rod or reel or line. As Craig said, like for a lot of us, especially for our noobs, my buddy Brad, as I've mentioned a couple times, gave me kind of some good advice. Is I was like, you know, is there really that big of a difference between, you know, my $200, uh, you know, 100 and some odd dollar Reddington Path rod and a, 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 a Sage Foundation? And he went, for where you're at with your casting, you may not know. He goes, if you're five years further in and you're a better caster and you've done a lot more than you've done now, you'll notice the nuance difference. And then even from there up to the pulse and to the sonic and to the, the X and some of the, the other you know rods that they make, he goes, as you get more experience, you'll notice more of the nuance differences. So buying, so, I mean, don't get me wrong. If you've got the money to jump in and buy the cool shit right away, get after it, buy the stuff that you want to <clears> buy. But for the, the newbies out there, like don't feel this huge pressure to have the most expensive rod, the most expensive reel, because quite frankly, for us, a lot of us aren't going to even know the difference. Uh, would you would you say that that's semi true or or I would agree with that 100 percent. In fact, um, you know, the first question I usually ask someone when they I want to buy looking for a fly rod. The first question I always ask is, what are you going to be doing with it? Yeah. Are you just going to be trout fishing only? That's all you're going to do. Well, I might recommend this. You're just a bass fisherman. I might recommend this. Um, and again, you know, I, I'd love to sell everybody a really expensive rod that walks in this door, but um, it really comes down to uh, getting started, getting your getting your uh, feet on the ground, um, getting your casting down, deciding what you like and don't like, which you don't really know until you get your casting down, and then you can pick up the $400 rod, the $800 rod, the $1,000 rod. And if it's worth it to you, it's worth it to you. Um, but my recommendation would not be come in and drop $1,000 on a fly rod uh, as a, new, as a new, new person. Yeah, and I mean, you know, one of the things that's been really advantageous for me here and why I, you know, constantly encourage people to check out a local fly shop or local angling, you know, uh, a shop, is if you build a relationship with the owners and with the GM and with the people that kind of run the store, you have the opportunity to, to try, to test, and to use gear that you're never going to be able to have access to, you know, otherwise. For example, 
my buddy Brad said, hey, man, I want to take you smallmouth fishing. You know, I've got a couple of rods, but it would be really advantageous if you had an eight weight rod, too. And I was like, cool, I've actually randomly got a reel and a line for an eight weight, but I don't have a rod. And I called up to the shop and said, hey, you know, what can I do? And you're like, oh, we've got a bunch of demo rods that you could take for the day. Come on up. We'll, we'll outfit you with one that fits your line. And, you know, obviously you're not going to do that for someone that's straight off the, the street that you've never met before. But by building a relationship with the shop, not only can you try a lot of rods, you can maybe demo one here or there. But I've also heard on more than one occasion when people bring in a rod that they've broken, you know, they've snapped the tip in their tailgate or, you know, snapped it in their door or something like that at their house. Uh, when they bring their rods in here to have them warrantied, you know, you're going to take their their warranty payment and get them taken care of and send it in, take care of all the shipping and everything, which you guys do all the time. But then also on more than one occasion, you've said, hey, do you need a rod to fish while this one's being fixed? And, you know, do you have a trip coming up or something like that that you really need this for? You know, the big box stores are not going to offer you that. No, they're not. And I'm guessing we're probably somewhat unique in that as a fly shop, too. Oh, are you really? Um, well, I don't know because I don't have another local fly shop in to, Denver that I go to or right, wherever. Right. Um, so, you know, demos are for two reasons. Um, one, I mean, when new rods come out, we try to order demo rods for the shop that we think are good rods. Um, so that if someone's interested in buying this $950 rod, would you like to take it for the weekend yeah. and try it? See if you like it or not, you know? Um, then the other thing is, yeah, if you're in a position where it's my only, you bought a rod from me, it's your only rod, you've broken it, you're going on a fishing trip in a week. Yeah. I got something you can borrow. Um, I would guess there's not a lot of fly shops that are doing that. Gotcha. I, I don't know. Um, I'll say this, whether that's part of their standard program or not, having a relationship with the guys that work at your local shop is going to benefit any angler out there. You're going to get better advice. You're going to get uh, information on things that are happening. And I'll, I'll kind of use this as a transition or a parlay into the, the final thing that we'll talk about this evening. Well, if you go into a big box store, yeah. like we were talking about, uh, there's probably one or maybe two people that work there that really know their stuff. Yeah, if that. And if you happen to pawn that person that day, you're good. Otherwise, you're getting the guy that works in the backpacking department selling you fly fishing equipment. Uh, or the guy that just walked in and said they want a retail job. They just want to make, you know, 10, even, even worse situation. Whatever, right. 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 And they yeah. Just, they just want to get paid to show right. up and put their polo shirt on. Right. Um, so, you know, on the 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 giving advice, kind of getting advice side of things, one of the things that I've really benefited from as being a part of the shop is getting involved in organizations that are in fly fishing, getting invited to go on trips or to be a part of different kind of cool projects. So one of the things that having built a relationship with the fly shop, I came up here one day, was just shop, you know, shooting the shit, shopping throughout the, the store. And you were like, hey, what are you doing in a couple of weeks? This organization, you know, the Gateway Trout Unlimited chapter that I'm now on the board for is doing this really cool conservation project down at Westover Farms. You have any interest in going and volunteering? It's kind of a manual labor type of thing. I was able to go, hell yeah, let's do that. I didn't really know a whole lot about it, but I just wanted to be, you know, more involved. Um, you know, we went and planted wild brown trout in this stream. We won't go into it. I've kind of talked about it on some other episodes, but being 
having a relationship with your local shop will get you into projects and volunteer opportunities and other kinds of the tertiary activities that revolve around Ozark fly hunters of the, uh, you know, the, the different clubs and things like that. It's a great way to find out about that stuff. Um, how did you get involved with the gateway to you board and, you know, kind of what was your, uh, desire to get involved? Well, um, the, uh, the gate gateway, uh, TU organization hasn't been around all that long. Uh, years ago, as I understand it, there was a TU organization in uh, in St. Louis, and for whatever reason, it kind of fizzled. Um, so there was a group of guys uh, a few years ago. I don't know that the, the, the current gateway to you is more than 15 years old or so, I guess. Um, but, of course, a lot of the people that um, are involved with the organization are also customers of my shop. Um and uh, last year, they just asked me to be on the board, um, and I agreed, telling them that I'm not really sure what my expertise oh, is or what I can help you with, but I'd be happy to help with anything that I can, which actually turned out that we had this brown trout planting thing, and I was thinking of people that could help with that, and I thought of you and your videography, and and it was the perfect storm. Yeah. It worked out great for you. It worked out great for the organization. Yeah, really but that's uh, just that uh, inter interconnectedness, yeah. Yeah, whatever. That's, that's part of the beauty of the shop, right, is it just brings all these different people that have a passion for conservation and for fishing and for being outside and being in rivers and doing that kind of thing uh, together, right? So. There's other organizations that I know that the shop kind of promotes and, and pushes out, like Project Healing Waters. Uh, can you talk just briefly about Project Healing Waters and what they do and why it's a good organization that the shop promotes? Absolutely. So uh, Project Healing Waters is actually an organization that was formed to uh, help uh, disabled veterans uh, through fly fishing and fly tying. Um, I got involved with it probably... Oh, gosh, it's probably been 10 years ago. Had a couple of customers of mine that got involved with this organization. And um, the whole idea of the, of the organization, um, they started off going down to Jefferson Barracks. And uh, these poor guys, um, shell-shocked, I guess would be a, a simplified term, um, getting them to read a fly fishing magazine, getting them to pick up a fly rod and cast it. Um, and uh, it, it's a different type of rehab method, but um, I think a very effective one. Um, it gets people involved at whatever level they want to be in. Um, I'm not going to mention any names, but um, we had a, a customer of mine and uh and someone that had been through uh, a couple of the desert war, uh, uh, de uh, a couple of the deployments, uh, sure, and uh, some bad stuff. And uh, this gentleman was pretty much sitting in his basement playing video games, uh, didn't want to socialize at all, um, and got involved with Project Healing Waters. And fast forward three years, and he's the uh, director of the local chapter. Awesome. So going from there to there, um, wow, what a cool program! Yeah. Um, and it's a national organization, um, and uh, they do uh, 
They do a lot of local stuff here in the state as far as um, just meeting with folks um, to do uh, fly tying and fly casting um, at Jefferson Barracks. Um, uh, they also take uh, disabled vets. I mean, it, it, if you get on if you get on look at Project Healing Waters website or look at any of their videos, I mean, it is so uh, empowering to watch them take these people that are uh, basically handicapped physically, mentally, and taking them out to these trout streams out. They take them out trips out west, out to the Rocky Mountains, and man, just what a fantastic organization. Um, doing a lot of things that I wish our government would do and is not doing. Yeah, it's there's something about fly fishing that requires you to be completely present, right, in the moment. You're not going to be an effective fly fisherman or woman if you are thinking about what's happening at your office or if you're worried about what's going on on little Timmy's soccer team. Uh, not that that doesn't warrant focus, but... Uh, you really want to be in the moment. You want to be focused on what's going on with your fly, what's going on with the water and with your line and what's going on kind of all around you. And takes you out of where you are in your mind to a different place. Exactly. Right. And absolutely. And as much as I would love to say that like the, the pure, you know, delivery of the, a silent, perfect delivery of a dry fly and the sip of a brown trout is what I'm really after. To me, it's about just putting me in places that I wouldn't otherwise go. Beautiful it's places. Exactly, right? It's I can't tell you how many times I'm just standing in the middle of a river and feeling the movement of the water hit me through the waders or just, you know, if I'm, I'm wet waiting. And I look up and there's a sunset or there's just that, that glimmer of sun across the water. And I sit there and go like, oh, my God, there's no chance I would be out here today if I wasn't trying to catch some fish. Uh, so it's an incredible tool for those people that may be struggling a little bit to find um, something. Yeah. To find whatever it is for them. Exactly. It's a great way. Uh, And it's a great tool to connect because if you can develop even a modicum of proficiency in fly fishing, it is a conversation topic for the rest of your life. Either people that know about it, you immediately have a language that you can speak that the rest of the people in the room don't or B People are so fascinated by it that you immediately have something that you can kind of be interesting with. And even if you're not very good at it or experienced, being able to simply share the difference between what is a leader and tippet uh, and the fact that a leader has tippet, just little things like that sure. make you uh, a lot more interesting at a cocktail party or in a conversation, at least in my experience. I've heard you're pretty interesting at cocktail parties. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I tend to be okay in a cocktail the party. Fine. I tend to be okay in a cocktail party. Uh, if you could only have one fly fishing rod for the rest of your life, what would it be? Bold question. Wow. That's a tough one. Or is there a rod through your lifetime of the last 17 years of fly fishing that you've just been like, Oh man, that's the one that got away. Okay. I've got an old eight and a half foot, uh, three piece, five weight sage light line. That'd be the rod. That Tom custom built for me a that's long time ago. Awesome. If I only had one. For trout fishing, that'd probably be it. That'd be the rod. So it's an eight and a half foot five weight. Yeah. And it's a you said it's a two piece? Three piece. A three piece. Which I think they actually made I think they made it in a two piece and then maybe a three piece and maybe I don't know. I bought it years ago because it was discontinued and then I had Tom build it for me. Gotcha. Yeah. And if you could only fish one river for the rest of your life, where would you fish? 
I can't answer that question. That's fair. If if I had to fish, if I had to fish <laughs> with a if I had to fish with there? a pitchfork in a dish, I'd probably do it, right? <laughs> for sure, for sure. What uh what do you think is kind of the stuff that's on the horizon for fly fishing or is it just kind of all the same thing kind of modestly moving forward kind of at the same pace that it has been? Is there anything that's on the horizon? Well, I think um the biggest advent I've seen in the last especially five to eight years is um, moving out of more just a man only thing. I have a lot more women fly fishers. I have a lot more youth fly fishers than we used to. So I think um, expanding the uh, people that are doing it as far as, uh, you know, women and yeah. kids a lot more of that um what do you think is is i hate to use the word spawning that interest but what is what is driving the interest in a larger female population do you think which is great by the way it is great and and uh the quick answer is i don't know um maybe just more women getting into it on a national level um, you know, you hear April Volke and you've got Her pod- podcast is fantastic. Shout out to April, by the way. Right. Um, and, um, I don't know, maybe just more young people getting into it as couples and, uh, doing that sort of thing. Um, and certainly, unfortunately the pandemic this last has, has driven a lot of more people into all outdoor activities, including fly fishing. Um, and I love it. I love it. I love seeing more diverse people out there. It's great. It really is. So to that point is, you know, one of the things that has been kind of a concern and we'll kind of close on this uh, through the pod or through the pandemic has been that a lot of fisheries have gotten a lot more pressure, right, than they are typically getting in a normal year during the pandemic because so many people have gone outside. Uh, do you feel like with this surge into the industry that the fisheries and that these watersheds can handle that kind of increased pressure? Or do you think that, you know, as things kind of transition back into people going to baseball games and doing kind of the normal stuff that they're used to, some of that pressure will ease off naturally and it's not a huge concern? Well, I'm hoping that the the more pressure, the more people doing that is funding our fisheries, um, both conservation uh, agents and uh, money for our fisheries. I hope bottom line is it's driving that, which makes it a, a better experience for everyone. Right. Um, so we'll see. Gotcha. So in your opinion, there is room for a, an increased population beyond what kind of the traditional standard has been over the last years. There's room for everybody that's coming in. We've just got to make sure that all of the agencies and everybody that kind of has a, a contribution on maintaining and managing those waterways and fisheries is getting what they need to do so. Absolutely. As long as they're not in my spot. Gotcha. Fair. <laughs> is that a... And, 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 and it is. It, well, you know, and here's the thing. It doesn't matter where you fish uh, in the country, um, if you've ever done a trip before, which I know you have. Yeah. Um, most people won't walk a hundred yards off of any access point. So even if you've got, even if you've got 25% more people doing it, you still have you only 5% of people that are going to walk a hundred yards. Absolutely. So you find your, you have to find your own solace. It can be harder. Um, but again, in a long, in the long run, uh, hopefully for the environment, um, we're driving money towards that. Yeah. That's what and I hope. Have- 
Do you have any practices or kind of uh, things that you encourage people to do that may be either new or uh, are, you know, uh, attending these fisheries for the first time to kind of encourage some of the right practices? Yes. I mean, how much? Yes. Tell me about so, some of those. Uh, I would say, and my parents encourage this, carry out more trash than you brought in. That's my number one thing. I don't know how many hundreds of pounds of trash I've carried out of fisheries over the years. But anytime I see stuff, I carry it out. And I encourage people, don't litter and carry out more than you – leave it better than the way you found it. Yeah, one of the things that I really want to kind of get in the habit of more is, you know, and I try to, to grab anything as I see it. Me too. Uh, is I really want to kind of try and purposefully leave at least a one-gallon uh, Ziploc bags room in my Patagonia Storm Surge 35 backpack that was purchased here uh, is uh, to, to have room to make sure that I can carry out a really, you know, a big share of trash and make it a conscious effort. You know what I mean? Like one of the things that I think a lot of people don't realize that they can make a huge impact is go get a five gallon bucket from Home Depot or from Lowe's and try and fill that five gallon bucket once a month with trash whether it be on the side of the road near your, where you live or whether you go to a stream nearby where you, you take an hour drive, go collect five gallons of trash a month. Uh, you'd be amazed at what kind of an impact if each one of us do something like that that we can make on our fisheries, on our watersheds, just on the natural landscapes that we inhabit kind of all over the place. You can make a huge impact. I agree a thousand percent. Absolutely. That's always the way I live my outdoor life. Absolutely. 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 And, and when it comes to and get involved with Missouri Stream Teams, yeah, okay. So talk about Missouri Stream Team. Let's let's close well, on I'm that. Not, What's I'm that not, about? I, I'm not expert on Missouri Stream Teams, but my buddy that taught me to fly fish uh, was part of Stream Team Number One, which is the Ruby Dew in Waynesville, Missouri, uh, turning that trashed old stream into a trout fishery, yeah. uh, which has expanded to good lord, I don't even know how many. Uh, stream teams there are in Missouri. Basically, uh, stream teams adopt a stream, and they have, uh, depending on the depending on the area, weekly, monthly, yearly, uh, they go and they clean trash off of streams. Uh, what a great organization! So if you want to get involved in the organization beyond just doing your little bit, which I always try to do, uh, get involved with some Missouri stream teams. Cool, cool. And that's, that's, I'll kind of close on the fact that, you know, fly fishing has really given me a much deeper appreciation for conservation and environmentalism. As a backpacker and a hiker, you know, I practice leave no trace practices. I try to stay in the center of the trail as much as I can. I try not to disturb a lot of the flora and fauna as I'm out and about. I try not to start fires when I shouldn't be, all those kinds of things. But there's not a whole lot that you feel like you can do to kind of give back, to make a positive impact short of just carrying out trash. One of the things that fishing has really done is it's taught me a much deeper understanding of the ecosphere that I'm inhabiting and what kind of impact that I can have that's positive on the animal ecosphere, on the insect populations, on what I'm doing in water quality, all those things. Uh, so if you really want to learn how to be a conservationist, fly fishing is a great hobby to get into because I think there's a ton of that kind of naturally baked into the sport uh, or into the hobby itself. And so it, uh, it really teaches you a lot about it. You're going to come across 
fisheries biologists and you're going to come across all kinds of people that have uh, really good information on how you can make a positive impact. So, Craig, thanks uh, so much for coming on, man. What, AJ, you, you got one. Thank you. No, I was going to say I agree a thousand percent, but I'm going to go back to when you're out there, pick up any trash you see and haul it out, man. It yeah. starts there. Everybody yeah. does that. And we're a lot cleaner. Absolutely. The, the world will be a better place if all of us pick up a little bit of trash. Here's a great quote to end on. It's not your trash, but it is your planet. So let's let's figure it out together. Amen, brother. Craig, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. This was a good time. I'm sure it won't be the last one before I leave town. Thanks, AJ.